0: Come to the end of our series in the the letter to the Philippians this evening. And as you can see from the bulletin, uh, simply entitled uh, This Evening's Sermon, Greeting the Saints. Greeting the Saints. Letter writing is pretty much a dead practice in our society today. I would imagine it's a very long time since most of us wrote a personal letter. Maybe there are formal letters that need to be sent off for various official purposes. Uh, but I, would imagine, I think we've, we've lost something worthwhile uh, by losing the personal letter. The reality, of course, is that we just don't need to write them anymore for the most part, although it may be a therapeutic thing to do at times. But maybe some of you are old enough to remember the days when we did send letters. Maybe some of you even dared to write love letters to the one that you were trying to woo back in the day. Uh, Letters, of course, were a far more intimate and personal way to communicate than today's social media platforms, for example. Uh, Even private text messages today don't have quite the same impact that written letters did. Uh, When someone wrote you a personal letter, they they took time out of their day to write it. If you watch any of those uh, period dramas like Downton Abbey, if someone says they're going to write a letter, it's like an afternoon activity. You have to go and, and take time and write several letters to different people and you would take time, you would, you would stop and you would, you would give care to what you were writing and you would think carefully about what you wanted to tell someone, maybe how much you missed them, how things are going for you, how much uh, you were looking forward to seeing them and a big catch up on what's going on in your life. We can still do all of that of course with videos and text messages and phone calls But letters were maybe more personal, more thoughtful, arguably more powerful. It's interesting then that of the the 27 books that make up the New Testament for us, uh, 21 of them are letters. Uh, In terms of word count, of course, the Gospels and the Book of Acts combined, they they account for far more of, of the New Testament total word count. But still, the, the, the words of the letters of the New Testament make up about 30% of the New Testament. And so a substantial amount of our Bible is made up of letters. Why is that? Well, I think it's for the very reasons that I've just mentioned that le- letters are, are very personal in nature. God just could just have given us a, a big theological textbook or encyclopedia Uh, With everything we need to know as believers. And you just look up the word Christian or justification or saint. And you would have the definition. And you would have what you need to know in terms of information. But instead God has given us a library of books. uh, A great variety of books. Some poetry books. Some legal books. Story books. And letters. Letters are far more pastoral than a theological textbook. If all we had was a a theological textbook, we'd be thinking to ourselves, well, that's all theoretical. That all looks good in a page, but it doesn't work in real life. And so instead, God has given us these letters written in real life scenarios from a real pastor to a real church. And at the heart of this letter of Paul to the Philippians, of course, we uh, Rather, in, in, the, in the letter, we see the heart of Paul for the Philippians. We see his love for them, his concern for them. And in Paul's concern for the Philippians, we see Christ's concern for his church. Because Paul, of course, was sent out by Jesus Christ. Everything he said and did, he did and said with the authority of Christ. Christ's representative. And so Paul's concern for the Philippians and for the local church... Is Christ's concern. And here tonight as Paul brings his letter to a close. He, he finishes just as he started it. Reminding the Philippians who they are in Christ. Reminding them of the love that they should have for one another. And reminding them ultimately too of the love that Christ has for them. And so really just even in these closing few words. Uh, some of The themes that Paul has teased out all through the letter, they're they're here again. And I want to draw your attention to four of them as Paul brings the letter to a close. First of all, he reminds them in this final greeting, he reminds them of their primary identity. Their primary identity. He says in verse 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Remember how Paul started his letter Philippians 1 verse 1. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Together with the elders and deacons. Why does Paul choose to both begin and end his letter with this particular description of the Philippians. Saints. Well it's because of what that word saint means. It means one who is set apart. Who is different. Who is In the world, but who is not like the world, who has a different identity to the rest of the world. That's what the word means. The word saint is not just a title for a select few super Christians, that's the way that the Roman Catholic Church has used it over the centuries. And so you hear of Saint Patrick or Saint Christopher, and you imagine, well, they must have been. Uh, you know, particularly super Christians or they must have been pretty much perfect people. They certainly are portrayed to look perfect in the stained glass paintings of them. They look as if they would never bat an eyelid at you. Uh, but that's not what the word means. It, it's a word for all Christians. It means that we're set apart. We're in the world. We might even look and sound like the rest of the world at times but we're different. Uh, a while ago I'm not sure where they came from but there's now in our, in our uh, cupboard in the kitchen uh, where all the mugs are, there's one mug that says dad and it's got some blue around it. And there's another mug that says mum and it's got some pink on it. And yes, the, those mugs, they, they, they look the same as the other mugs in the, in the cupboard. And to some degree, they, they serve some of the same functions. But in a sense, they're set apart. They're marked for me and the other one for Hannah. There is a special use for which they are theoretically to be kept. And that's a bit like what the word saint means. We're we're in amongst other human beings in the world. And yet we are different. We are marked. We are called by Christ to be different from the world. And Paul is concerned. He's been concerned all through the letter to emphasize this. But he's concerned to emphasize this to the Philippians. Because they were living in a proudly Roman city. Uh, you remember how we considered. Uh, way back weeks ago. How Philippi was a Roman colonial city. And, and they were very proud of that. Uh, these believers. They were they were Roman citizens. And they were living surrounded by people. Who were concerned to keep up to date. With Roman fashions. And Roman architecture. And Roman religion. Uh, the, the, the city of Philippi would always be keen to hear. What's going on in Rome. What's. What's going on politically or culturally? Uh, What are people wearing? What are people doing? What are they talking about? And yet whilst Paul and other Christians could be very thankful for some of the benefits of being Roman. It was never to be their primary identity. Tells them in chapter 2 verses 15 to 16 to be blameless and innocent. (coughs) Remember that they are children of God, he says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that they are to shine as lights in a dark world, that that they're to act like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. These are all things that he has said earlier in the letter citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And here, right at the end, he reminds them to your saints. Whatever gods or goddesses are worshipped in the temples of Philippi or Rome. Whatever titles Caesar may take for himself. Caesar is never wrong. Caesar is the saviour of the world. Remember, you have another king. You have a whole different identity. And you have a greater saviour than Caesar, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians were living in a relatively comfortable part of the world in that time. And it would have been easy for them to just pay lip service to their Christian faith and to blend into the crowd. Paul urges them right at the end not to do that. He reminds them of their primary identity. And we need to do the same as believers in our time and place as well, friends. It's perhaps providential that I'm preaching this message on the first Lord's Day in the month of June. Some of you are likely well aware, June is now the high holy month of one of the most popular false religions in our nation today. The religion of pride. Some of you may, maybe saw the video that the Christian Institute put out this week with Reverend Matthew Roberts. I think that's his name, I hope I'm getting that name right. But it's on the Christian Institute page. Making the case for how pride has all the trappings of a religion now. There are parades, there are flags, there are songs, there are celebrations Uh, They are evangelical in trying to win people to their cause. All over social media, company logos are turning into the colours of the pride flag for the next few weeks. In countries like ours at least, they're not so keen to do it. In Muslim countries for some reason. But in our country, all these different logos, BMW, Ireland, Rugby, all endless number of them changing their colours to the pride flag for this month. Rainbow lanyards will appear in some of your places of employment. Maybe they're just there year round now in some cases. BBC is once again pushing LGBT programming right to the front of the queue on your iPlayer homepage, whether you want it there or not. Parades will take place, music will be played, parties will be thrown and acceptance will be expected. But we're saints. Doesn't mean that we're better by nature than anyone who will be waving the rainbow flag. But it means that we serve a king who has made very clear in his word that pride of any kind leads to death. We can love and respect all of our neighbours, but we cannot celebrate everything the world celebrates. But temptation takes more subtle forms for saints in our culture too, maybe for you young people Maybe the pressure comes over what kind of material you choose to post on social media, words or pictures. Others might pose a certain way or wear certain kinds of clothing or perhaps very little clothing. But what should a saint be posting on social media? In our part of the world, and I've said this before, the whole issue of identity is very political. And increasingly as well, we're hearing all this Confusion and uncertainty about what the future might hold for our part of the world politically, and you can have your opinions on that. And it's there's nothing wrong with being glad and even uh, thankful and appreciative of a of a national identity, but it is not our primary identity, whatever that identity might be. For some of us, and this is not the first time you've heard me make this application either, but our identity as saints should impact how we spend the Lord's day. I think one of the clearest indicators of spiritual laxity in the wider church in Northern Ireland today is this lack of desire even amongst Christians to keep this day holy. There's this trend for earlier and earlier morning services and fewer and fewer evening services at all. Why is that? It's because Christians want to spend as much of the day, professing Christians as much of the day as they can, just like everyone else spends it whatever that form that might take, sport, entertainment, whatever. If we claim to be saints, holy ones, how much care do we take over God's holy day? Some of you in the world of business or making your way through a career, others might be willing to cut certain corners or excuse certain actions or cheat or lie or fiddle forms, but how should a saint act in those scenarios. Christian, you're a saint. It doesn't mean you're perfect yet, but it means your life is not your own. You're to be different and set apart from the world around you. Jesus Christ has purchased you with His blood, and so you conform to His word and to His law. And Paul, even as he brings his letter to a close, uses that powerful word. Uh, Just to remind them again of their primary identity, saints. But uh, as well as uh, reminding them of their primary identity, Paul also in this final greeting reminds them of the priority of unity. The priority of unity. And as I said earlier, at Psalm 133. This has been a theme of the whole letter and it comes out again here at the end. Notice he says in verse 21... Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In most of Paul's letters, uh, well, he often finishes by naming certain people that he's writing to. In Romans 16, for example, uh, Paul names 25 people. And he says, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. And And then he also greets others uh, without naming them in that chapter. But here in Philippians, it, it seems that Paul doesn't want to leave anyone out. All of these people in Philippi mean so much to him. And so he says, greet every saint, greet whoever there is in the congregation, every single one of them, greet them. And in so doing, Francis, is he not reminding his readers of what he's been saying repeatedly in this letter? You're to be united. You're all saints. You're, you all share the same fundamental identity. You're united by what matters most about you. He said to them in chapter 1, verse 27, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. <coughs> he didn't want to hear of anyone being neglected. He didn't want to hear of uh, anyone uh, causing division or cliques in the church. He wanted them to be united Like Roman soldiers on the battlefield, shoulder to shoulder, advancing together. He said as well in chapter 2. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Appealing for unity. Remember how he had appealed, and, and the word really means that he begged, Judea and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I appeal to you to agree in the Lord. He says, I'm down on my knees here. Please put aside this division between you. And be united for the sake of the gospel. And so it's been a theme of the whole letter. And by using this phrase, greet every saint, friends. Paul he he he's leveling the playing field here for the Philippians. He's saying that, as he did, in, right at the beginning of the letter, chapter one, verse one, you're all saints. No matter who does what in terms of service in the church, no matter who has which gifts, no matter who does which jobs, no matter what realm of society you come from—elder, deacon, Sabbath school teacher, church cleaner, church member. Young or old. Single or married. Your saints. Together in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say. Greet the saints you're particularly fond of. He doesn't say. Greet the saints who fit into your age bracket. He says greet every saint. I wonder could we. <coughs> make a point of doing that. In our congregation over the next few months. That you, that you speak to. Uh, different People. That you make a point of sitting beside someone 10 or 20 years older or younger. That you meet someone for coffee, get to know each other better, pray together. (coughs) Talk about uh, the week's Bible study or your own devotions or sermons together after worship. It's a session we've been very encouraged by uh, the support for the home groups that we started last September. One of the reasons for that was for this very purpose to be... Greeting the saints, even to be greeting each other on the doorsteps of our homes, and getting to know one another and building those bonds of fellowship. And I would encourage you, come September time, if you haven't already, to be to be part of those groups. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In doing so, Paul, Paul says you're helping to build and safeguard the unity of your church family. So their primary identity, the priority of unity. Uh, Thirdly here at the end of the letter Paul reminds them of the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Paul says in verse 21. The brothers who are with me greet you. Even when Paul was a prisoner in Rome. We believe he was under house arrest when he wrote this letter. There were a few faithful friends uh, sticking by him. Coming to see him. uh, Maybe bringing him the gifts of the wider church. Spending time with him. Maybe praying with him. (coughs) We don't know uh, who all these people were. But he's mentioned a few of them in the letter. You remember in chapter 2 he mentioned Timothy. (coughs) (coughs) And he said that he needed Timothy to stay with him in Rome for a little while longer. Uh, The Philippians were maybe hoping that Timothy would go back and, and minister to them. But Paul says, I need him here. And quite possibly Dr. Luke was with Paul at this juncture as well. Uh, Luke wrote the gospel that bears his name. He also wrote the book of Acts. And his writing in Acts suggests that he was very much, that he was present with Paul uh, when he traveled to Rome. We don't know exactly who Paul's talking about, but it's intriguing. It's interesting to think about who they might have been and how they might have supported him. (coughs) It's even more intriguing to read what Paul says in verse 22. He says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I think Caesar's household, that's interesting. Caesar, the ruler of the Roman world, the most powerful man in the world. <coughs> What's Paul talking about when he says that there are saints in Caesar's household? Well, the commentators offer different suggestions. Uh, some of them point out that Caesar's household was a phrase that could be used to refer uh, to the whole of the Roman civil service. Uh, you know, As in people serving the house of Caesar, they were working in the government. Uh, so Paul perhaps isn't necessarily talking about the emperor's closest friends or family here when he says Caesar's household. Perhaps he's talking about some of the soldiers who, uh, as he mentions earlier in the letter, it seems that many of them had come to faith in Christ partly through uh, Paul being imprisoned. Perhaps Paul is even using a code word here to protect the identity of believers, maybe high up in the government. We don't know ultimately who he's talking about exactly. But the point is, friends, that people from all walks of life, even perhaps people from some of the highest offices or social circles in the Roman government in Rome, they were getting saved, they were repenting of sin, they were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Paul said back in chapter 1, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It doesn't matter whether he's a prisoner or a free man. It doesn't matter if he's only able to witness to one person at a time or hundreds of people at a time. Jews or Gentiles, soldiers or civil servants or whoever it may be. The good news of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save anyone. And of course this would be particularly exciting news for the Philippians. Because again they were such proud Romans. They were glad to be Roman citizens. They, were, uh, they, they felt this very close connection with the, the city of Rome. And so Paul saying would well, you want to know what is going on in Rome? People are getting saved. What happened for you is happening for people there as well. And how encouraging would that be for them to hear? It's, it's not impossible to be a Roman citizen and a Christian. It's not, it might be very difficult, it might be very demanding, but it's not impossible. And Paul here is reminding the Philippians with this intriguing little phrase, the members of Caesar's household. He's reminding them that their partnership with him for the gospel, it's bearing fruit. People from all walks of life are getting saved. And isn't it so encouraging when we hear of what's going on elsewhere in the world, to hear of uh, how the gospel is advancing. We we would long to see it happening more on our doorstep. And we give thanks for even the one or the two that we might hear of coming to faith around us. But it was so encouraging last Tuesday evening to hear of the opportunities that uh, Stephen had going out on the trip to the Far East and the and the life-changing ministries going on there. It's an example of exactly what Paul talks about here. Gospel partnership. Whether people are coming out of a situation of human trafficking. Uh, whether it's pastors passing on the word of God. in some of the most remote parts of the world. And seeing people get saved. Whether it's passing on life skills. And in the course of that passing on the gospel. The gospel is advancing in those places princes and paupers, presidents and prime ministers, girls in Thailand, men in Bulgaria, any of them can become saints through the power of the gospel. And shouldn't it encourage us all the more, friends, to be taking that word to our nearest and dearest, hoping for them to become saints as well. Those family members for whom you've been praying maybe all your life Those neighbours down the road or up the street. The people of this town whom we want to witness to. Particularly in the summer, towards the end of the summer. The plans that we have and the ongoing witness that we should have as well. These final words of Paul to the Philippians remind us of the power of the gospel. To change the heart of anyone. Even some of the people that humanly speaking might seem the least likely to be saved. Their primary identity, the priority of unity, the power of the gospel. And finally, as Paul brings his letter to a close, he reminds them of the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. Paul closes with what we call a benediction or a doxology. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And this is how Paul ends almost every single one of his letters. He ends with this benediction or a, or a version of it a benediction is not a prayer it's a statement it's a reminder to you as you leave this building or as you leave any forum of public worship and you, you go out into another week God's grace will be enough God's grace will be with you God's presence goes before you he will protect you he will sustain you his spirit will empower you The grace of the Lord Jesus is all over the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1 verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is literally in the heart of this letter. Chapter 2 verse 7 as Paul describes the the willing, loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says that he Christ emptied himself taking the form of a servant. What was that? That was grace. His choosing to come into the world, his choosing to take on human flesh, his obedient going to the cross to die. In chapter 3, Paul celebrated Christ's grace in his own life. Remember, he spoke of the gift of his faith, that he wasn't trusting in academic achievement or in his Jewishness or in his his clean living or anything else. Grace alone saved Paul. Paul. And grace gets the last word of the whole letter. It's by grace that God saves us. And it's by grace that God keeps us. And it's the gracious presence of Christ that goes with us. Paul couldn't be there in Philippi. He couldn't see these saints that he loved face to face. It's very hard for us, isn't it, to imagine the sense of distance and disconnect between them. You know, We're just used to... Again, turn on the phone and even if you're hundreds of miles away, you can do a video call if you want and see the face of your loved one. Paul was so far away, probably heard so little from them. But he knew that they had everything they needed. He reminds them of that right at the end. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You have everything you need as long as you have him. I'm sure for all of us, there have been times in our lives where the mere presence of someone was such a help to us in the midst of some difficulty. Little children, uh, oftentimes that's all that they want. They just want the presence, the reassuring presence of their father or mother or grandmother or grandfather. Friends, Christ is always with us. By faith, we can always see the shepherd with us, no matter what we may be facing. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will enable you to live as a saint, even in this sinful world. He will enable you to maintain he will enable us rather to maintain our unity and build upon our fellowship here. And he will use us to proclaim his powerful gospel, even to the Caesar households, to the most unlikely people you can imagine to be saved. The hymn writer has said, grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Do you know his saving grace? It's always worth repeating the definition, particularly for our children. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. And grace is the only way for you to be saved from your sins. The grace of Christ who died on the cross Just ask for that forgiveness and he graciously gives it. Believer, do you you trust in his sustaining grace? Let's not wake up tomorrow a bundle of anxieties and worries. Cast your cares upon him and he will graciously sustain you. Philippians is a wonderful letter. Right in the heart of it, we saw our saviour who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself even unto death, death on a cross. Philippians calls us in response to that to press on with joy, to stand firm in the Lord, to live as saints, to love one another and to proclaim the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. And for these tasks and for everything else, friends, may we know and believe that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with our spirit. Amen.